You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we are going to be taking a look at Nicholas Meyer as a novelist on the whole. A retrospectival. Mm-hmm. We've covered all six of his novels, and now we are going to recap them one by one and uh, sort of try to draw some sort of conclusions as to his career as a novelist. So, um, he wrote six books. and Conclusion! The, six books. The, the six books were Target Practice, The 7% Solution, The West End Horror, Black Orchid, Confessions of a Homing Pigeon, and The Canary Trainer. Mm-hmm. It looks birds. Mm-hmm. So let's just get started with number one, 1974, Target Practice. This was a book about um, a, guy. A, a detective, a private detective, during the the Watergate scandal it was was written during the Watergate scandal, and he's investing investigating the reasons behind the suicide or apparent suicide of a soldier um, who had. It's not like a mystery or anything. He just straight up killed himself. That's right. Yeah, not covering anything up. Who 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 had just returned from from Vietnam? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's it's Chinatown, but instead of. Covering up a murder and various nefarious dealings. It's a murder and various nefarious dealings that happened in Vietnam. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts on uh, target practice? Eh, you know, um, I've read a lot of books that have you know detective characters as the protagonists, and I've read a lot of mysteries. This one didn't really hook me or any anything. You know, I've got older uncles, so I've heard a lot of people rant about Vietnam, and uh, I. I Generally speaking, I'm not really interested in it because I think the the cultural narrative is that was a stupid thing to do, and I I agree. So I don't really need somebody to convince me that it was a stupid place or a stupid time. Right, but you have to look at it in the historical context. I mean, this was written in 1974, so I don't have to look at it in the historical context. I mean, if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to say that it was well written for its time, that's fine. But it doesn't hold up. Okay. It's it's too dated by the material. I I mean I disagree. I, I thought it was quite good. Um I I really like how they uh or how he used um you know sort of old-style detective fiction tropes in order to tell this extraordinarily modern uh for the time story. And and I think it's also really interesting when you uh Look at the parallels between that and the other book which he wrote in 1974, which is The 7% Solution. That was his first Sherlock Holmes book. It was the one where Holmes meets uh, Freud and gets off the junk, if you will. What, 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 did, what did you think about, the, uh, about that book? It really is a book about Holmes getting off of drugs, mm-hmm. which is a totally bizarre thing to do. And while reading it, uh, I know. I know. My reaction was, "This is not really the story." And then somebody gets murdered, and I was like, "It's kind of late for that to happen." But see, that's the thing: is it is really the story, and at the same time, they felt the need to, or he felt the need to put a uh, a mystery on top of it. Well, I think that's kind of where it fails because the mystery 
is not nearly as good as the story of um, Holmes getting clean. See, I disagree because I think that Holmes getting clean isn't actually a story. I, I think I think it is. I mean, I think the I way mean, that they me, do there's that. Like, there's like no arc to that. I mean, like I mean, essentially, you know, there's there's a like the the titular seven percent solution. No, because is, I mean, is, is essentially a way of getting around the whole like difficulties of getting off of drugs thing. No, but I mean, they they talk about him, you know, going there, like convincing him to be there and stuff like that. Yeah, and then you know they have that scene at the end where he's hypnotized and you get the big reveal to uh, Holmes's past. But regardless of that, if that's the story that you're going to tell, it's kind of I'm not going to say weird because it's more typical than anything. To graft a, a a very traditional Holmes mystery onto it, I know what you're saying. You're saying that it's it, that it was unnecessary to add the murder element, and I'm saying that neither one is particularly well founded. Neither one has a great foundation for a story. The murder is tacked on. the the crim, The criminal element of the story is is forced into the story, and the problem is because with which if you exclude that, then you more or less have a diary. Of somebody getting off of drugs, which doesn't really have much of an arc. Okay, so I guess here's here's a question for you. Um, when we were initially talking about doing a series on Nicholas Meyer, you know, one of the things which you said that you absolutely wanted to cover, and the reason why we chose novels was the seven percent solution. Mm-hmm. I know that you had read it before, yeah, and now you know you reread it now. Does your memory of uh, what you thought of it, like, did, did, did that change? Did your opinion of the book change on this, on this uh, reading? Do you, do, are you not as fond of it as you remember being? I, I really like the idea that somebody made the 7% solution. I like that the, the role it plays in like, the Sherlock Holmes canon. But, I mean, like, ultimately, if you're saying like, that it's a good read, it isn't. Mm-hmm. It's broken. Like it's it's incredibly bottom heavy and and the story when it gets started doesn't really have a lot going for it, but there's work done essentially in the prologue mm-hmm. that is fascinating, and and for me for my money after I know that there's really not much more reason to go into it, okay? Because after that prologue, which does an, an amazing amount of really interesting stuff to the Sherlock Holmes canon, there's not a whole lot there. Okay, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. You know, that's that's pretty much my opinion on it. Like, I, I was um, really interested in in what it was they were doing. I keep on saying they, what, they, it, what it was the he, royal they, <laughs> what it was he was doing. But 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 the the end result, if you look at it just as as a piece of work on its own, it's it's not that tremendously good. I still enjoyed it. I still think it is good, but it's it it doesn't work as as a cohesive whole as much as some of his other books do oh i enjoy it plenty i just don't think it's good two years later after the the very very huge success of of the seven percent solution um meyer returned to sherlock holmes for a much more traditional story mm. i think you could argue his most traditional Holmes story uh the west end horror in 1976 at the same time kind of not to traditional at all well let's, we'll get into that in a second but um this this put Holmes in the the theater scene um at the time 
He interacts with a lot of uh, prominent uh, theater people from that era, era including uh, George Bernard Shaw. Um, Gilbert I, Sullivan, Bram Stoker. So, so what, what? why would you say that this is, in some ways, not a typical home story? This story, like, there basically is no clue. I mean, the like the initial crime that is inve- that's being investigated has one potentially, possibly a clue piece of information, and not until literally like the last ten pages is that clue explained. Mm-hmm. And until that that point, they basically go from place to place, coming up with hypotheses to explain that clue that connected to the situation that they're in. So more or less. Somebody gets murdered, and then Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson run around London for a while, hanging out in various places and meeting weird people. So it's not like a typical Holmes novel, because, I mean, the, the, the few that there are didn't have even close to that kind of bizarre bubble-like structure. But comparing it to 7% Solution and Canary Trainer, which we'll get to later on, to me, this seems like, out of the three, the most typical, because... Obviously, with 7% Solution, you have a, a large portion of that story dedicated to homes getting clean. And in The Canary Trainer, you basically don't have Watson. Yeah, except the thing is, like not having Watson, that's not that atypical. And, I mean, it would be, it's difficult to, to explain, but like I consider Canary Trainer to be almost dead on. Well, Sherlock Holmes format. Well, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a second. For, for me, the West End horror um, worked pretty well. I, I I liked the 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 mystery involved, and and I think that in terms of you know structure and everything, it it was a lot more solid than Seven Percent Solution. I don't think that it had as much going for it in terms of content, but um, as just a a, a typical um, sort of mystery story. I, I enjoyed it. Um, well, there's a similar thing going on in all of these books where it's Nicholas Meyer showing how much research he's done into the material because the 7% Solution shows a, a rather intricate uh, researching of landmarks, geography, and, and uh, you know various historical places and their relative positioning. And the West End Horror does that about 10 times more intricately with uh, essentially the entire West End of London. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty impressive. Moving on, uh, in 1978, he uh, co-wrote a novel with Barry J. Kaplan called Black Orchid. Yes. This was uh, a pretty big departure for him. Um, it was his first novel, which wasn't uh, detective fiction. It it, it was uh, much more of sort of a, a romance, adventure, historical fiction piece about... Um, an adventurer from uh, America who's sent in by the British government to Brazil in order to try to break up the the rubber monopoly um, and uh, free some oppressed people. Incidentally, I guess, you know, it's more about uh, not having to pay a lot for tires and stuff. What what did you think about uh, Black Orchid? This is a very strange novel. And it's strange in that it's exceptionally typical of the the sort of genre that it's in, which is, 
an odd way to describe something as strange, but it is strange for this guy, for Nicholas Meyer to be doing this, because it is oddly exactly what I would expect from this material. Halfway through this book, the story starts. And then, um, like 30 pages from the end, you know what, why you were reading this book. Mm-hmm. But until then, it's pretty much hanging out in Brazil or on a boat. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't uh, really a, a, agree with, with that assessment so much. You know, I think that, that the stuff that's going on early on it is important. Well, you described it as a gear shift. And if it's a gear shift, it is a gear shift from like one to two. Maybe. I mean, it's not a huge gear shift, but it does definitely take a turn at some point. Um, but uh, It takes I, a very leisurely turn down a very large and slow-moving river. Okay. <laughs> I liked it. I I, I th- think it had some its fair share of problems. I mean, it's m- much too long, uh, and I think most of the time, which is spent uh, um, in error, <laughs> is uh, spent on description, which is not at all necessary and actually not very good either. Let's move on to uh, his fifth book, which was released in 1981, which was called Confessions of a Homing Pigeon. Now, this book uh, apparently was uh, semi-autobiographical. It's it's about a kid whose parents were killed in a circus accident. Yes. And um, he's sent to France to live with his uh, drunk uncle. And then he's sent back to America to live with his other aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. And he decides that he needs to uh, run away and go find his drunk uncle in France again. Find his, his home. Yeah, that's your... See, that's the thing you're saying, and I don't... You, we went over this in the episode. I really do not think that that's the story. I mean, like, the story is a kid whose parents died when he was very young, who went from family to family and never really fit in anywhere, decided to run away from his home in Chicago. And he decided to go visit somebody that he knew when he was younger... His uncle Fritz. Well, sure. No, I, I guess I'm thinking of it more from the character perspective, you know. And I think that the character perspective is fairly well delineated as being a kid who has his first conscious decision, his first self-independent, first act, like you know, his first real decision as a person, a complete person, is to run away from home, and that's where the story starts. Yeah. And before then, it's basically all flashback. So, what were your thoughts on Confessions of a Homing Pigeon? I don't read these kinds of books. I, you know, I, I, I'm not really interested in um, you know people, you know, exposing their uh, their their awkward moments of their childhood. And it really is kind of like a like a childhood book. It's a book sort of about you know a person's childhood, which is why it sort of has a lot of little episodes that feel very accurate to like what it feels like to be a kid. Because if you ever remember what it was like to be a kid, it was filled with awkwardness and, 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 and difficult, painful moments that you didn't entirely know why things were happening, and that's just how it went. And, and you know, exposing all of that, it makes for, you know, a, a very personal experience for the author. And when you're reading it, you can tell, yeah, yeah, that feels real. I imagine that happened. That sucks. And at the same time, I understand how that shapes a person. At the same time, I understand why I don't read these books. I'm not interested in this. I, I want to read something that I, I learned something from. And th- like so much of this book felt like, hey, I remember when I was a kid. That was awful. Well, I think what that does, and, and one of the reasons why I liked it, is because um, 
the fictionalized version of Nicholas Meyer's childhood made me reflect on my own childhood. And uh, that was something that I, I really responded to probably more than anything else in his, dare we say, canon. It's um, not the best written book, but but it did uh, have the biggest impact on, on See, me. See, that, that to me, that, that to me is just like, I mean, that's that's what you feel when you read a book that's like that. I mean, it's just, it's an arbitrary kind of emotion. It's like, it's, you're drawing on like an emotion that everybody has because everyone has these shared childhood. Everyone has a very similar sort of experience of growing up because that is like, I mean, childhood is basically a process of disillusionment of like, Oh, everything's fine. And like, Oh crap, things die. And then, Oh crap, I'm getting older and Oh crap, I'll never be eight again. And like, so like if you capture that feeling, those little moments of childhood, as you become an adult, like that's, it's going to resonate with the reader because that's just what happens. It's just, it's, it's like a trick. It's like you're hacking the brain of the reader by saying yeah you know what that felt like it was hard right you yeah feel the emotion feel the emotion i made that happen i made that happen no. my name's on the book i made that happen and you know what i feel that's cheap it's not just about feeling the emotion it's about you know making you think about why you're feeling the emotion and and this book does not have anything in there that that gives you any new information if you've ever read one of these books before you've already had those moments maybe Maybe not, or maybe you know. Every once in a while, you need a, a a refresher. You need to go. You need to read one of these books in order to to uh, experience that again. I, I I don't know. I'm inclined to say that uh, every generation needs one of those. It's not in time with my generation, or anyone I know. I don't know. I think that this story was rather timeless, and uh, you know, I it, it it did definitely strike a chord with me. I didn't feel it was cheap at all, and um, I feel like the entire genre is cheap. I feel like the entire genre of like like you know uh, coming of age stories of of kids and and in you know the real world dealing with their problems. I think that the entire genre is cheap. Well, I think it's essentially manipulation of 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 the readership by saying like you all have these similar experiences relate to this character because you've had similar experiences to them. To me, that's that's kind of like cheating. I mean, essentially, you're like you're not putting in any work into it. You're just saying like you're also a person. Well, I think this is kind of an extension of uh, the uh, discussion which we've had for the past twelve, thirteen years mm -hmm. about um, you know books or movies like this. You know, things which are uh, very sort of. Uh, character or if you want to call them you know emotional emotionally based you know and and um i know that you're not a big fan of of them i mean the, the big one that, that always you know comes up i guess would be magnolia because of how much i love that movie yeah except i mean like my problem with magnolia is that it's not a about anything i mean right. mostly like what i'm objecting to is the idea that i'm supposed to say something is good because it made me feel something right but like no. and, and, and the idea that magnolia is not about anything i think is absolutely insane no i'm saying that it's about really superficial emotional interactions yeah it's about exactly the kind of emotions that you can draw on a single piece of paper using caricatures yeah totally disagree but that's okay. We're not talking about Magnolia today, luckily. Right. So um, let's move on to uh, his, his next book then, which was The Canary Trainer, his final book, which he wrote 12 years later in 1993. It's uh, also his final Sherlock Holmes book. And um, 
it, this one uh, picks up sort of where 7% solution left off. Uh, Holmes is in his great hiatus, and he goes to France to reinvent himself. Um, well, in, in more hideout. Hide out and reinvent himself. He doesn't. He doesn't intend to. Well, I don't he know. Has, he, he never. He, he says like he he came up with the name off the top of his head. He's keeping. He's keeping his options open. But but he does decide to do something other than detecting. He decides to play the violin. Yeah, it's it's Holmes meets the Phantom of the Opera. And what were your thoughts on that? Um, you know, I never liked the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, I I read the book when I was rather young, and did not care for it. And uh, when the musical was super crazy popular. Um, I suppose it actually took a few years for it to hit, but my mom was really into the music, so I, I like, know all those damn songs without thinking about it. Uh, and and I've never liked it. And every once in a while, like, it comes back into, like, the public consciousness and suddenly I have to deal with it again. And every time it happens, I'm like, this is a stupid story. There's a little girl who's obsessed with a murderer who's running around in an opera killing people. I mean, he's the most terrifying, like, stalker in history who's not only, like, terrifying because of how crazy he is, he's also terrifying because he's got, like, no face. And somehow women find this romantic. That, to me, is incredibly disturbing. And and then, you know, I'm reading this book, and I was like, this is a different perspective on it. It's like, oh, the Phantom, he's really scary in this version of the story. I get that. That makes sense. Because, like, that version where he's romanticized, that doesn't work at all. I don't buy that for a second. And if 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 I were in a position where I saw like the, the the Phantom of the Opera as being an angel of music who was really interesting and 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 alluring, I would be terrified because that's that's a monstrous psychology to to manifest. And and in this context, I finally understood why people liked Phantom of the Opera. It is a cool setting. It is a cool situation, like like you know, like the opera house and the location and like the the sewer system. Like I mean, France it's thousands of years old. The people have been living there for like like thousands of years. It's fascinating. It's got a huge history of underground history. It's all like present there in layers. It's like a civilization, you know, like in geology. It's fascinating, and in this context, I get the appeal of it because I don't have to see it from that girl's point of view. Well. I uh, really didn't have much exposure to Phantom of the Opera at all. I, I had only seen the Joel Schumacher movie, and I did not like that one bit, so I, I uh, don't really have much memory of it. But uh, so, so I kind of went into this into this book with a clean slate. But uh, I, I thought it was um, really good. Uh, this, this book, I mean. You know, I I do think it is you know kind of atypical Holmes again because you don't have Watson, but but I think that but that's that, that's the thing. I mean, there are lots of no Watson stories. Maybe, but I had never read any of them, and, and you know, I, I I think it worked uh, quite well. But yeah, on the whole, I think this might be his best Holmes book. Um, I think that it's it is his best Holmes book. It definitely is, and it's also one of the few Holmes stories that doesn't feel. It it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like he's showing off. It feels like he's 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 like he's shown off at this point. He's like I I know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and by putting it in a novel, it actually like really felt like it was like expanding the universe in some really bizarre directions. Because I mean, the previous books have sort of expanded into reality, and this one kind of you know tucks this novel into that then reality. 
So it's it's a really interesting thing, and I I wish he you know kept doing these because I'd like to see what other crazy ass things he could come up with. So any final thoughts on Meyer's career? How how would you uh, sum sum it up? Uh, looking at at you know his career as a novelist, I think that when he wants to have fun, he does his best work because it seems that when he wants to be taken seriously, he kind of goes too far with taking things seriously. Because The Canary Trainer and West End Horror and even The 7% Solution, they are his most fun books and he's having a lot of fun, more or less goofing off during the entirety of them. But they also show an extremely you know, thorough researcher and a dedicated storyteller who really takes it seriously. When he is having fun, he's at his best. And when he seems to be not having fun or you know, bearing his soul, he ends up kind of hitting the middle mark of quality. Okay. Um, I, I can kind of see what you're saying. I, I don't necessarily agree with that assessment. I think, like, it, it's, uh, in some ways, I see it as kind of like, in a sense, Paul Thomas Anderson, I guess, where uh, when he's he's got, like, a, a, a lot to say, um, he sort of throws some of the, um, the, the more tried and true, uh, formalistic qualities out the window in order to uh get get down what he he feels is important you know whereas um with with his sort of uh fluffier pieces he can take those those more simple ideas and just really focus on on form you know just like nail that i mean it's 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 a very very Fine line. I know I what you're saying, a, a like sentence-wise, but I don't agree that either of those things are accomplished in anything he's ever done. Okay, all right. Um, are you talking about Paul Thomas Anderson yes. or, or Nicholas? Paul Meyer? Thomas Anderson. I, I'm trying to imagine if, like, you, like, a, like a, a fictional Paul Thomas Anderson mm-hmm. that you know made a good movie at some point. If like that really existed, like what the parallel would be with this. So I know what you're trying to say. Okay, fine. For your purposes. Everyone else hopefully will know what I'm talking about, but for I your purposes... I swear to God, most people do not see Paul Thomas Anderson the way you see him. Okay. Most people see him as a fairly typical middle-of-the-road director. Okay. I think you're completely wrong about that. But okay. for your purposes, let's just replace Paul Thomas Anderson with Steven Spielberg and just leave it at that. That's inaccurate, too. Okay. Look, don't come up with a, another person to compare this to. I know what you're saying. You're saying that when he's got a lot to say, he goes overboard with the saying of it. Okay. All That's right. it. He doesn't know that what he's saying can be accomplished without saying all the words. Some sentences are best without all of the words added to them, because when you keep adding words to it in order to make your point about how important this sentence is, it ends up dragging on and on and on and never gets to the damn point, so you don't know what the point of the sentence was. Like a really long analogy involving Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay, fine. Then let's wrap this up, shall we? <laughs> My point is, I think that he he is really good. Um, I, I, I enjoyed every single one of his books. And uh, the ones which I thought I would enjoy most uh, were the ones which I, I thought were the best written, but didn't um, strike the, the 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 strongest or the the uh, the truest chord with me. So that pretty much wraps up Nicholas Meyer as a novelist. We're going to return to Nicholas Meyer next season. The, the first arc of our our new season will be. Uh, 
Nicholas Meyer as a director, uh, but that, that'll be a few months down the road. In the meantime, we've got some cool things lined up. Uh, up next, we've got a, a two-part series where we're going to be talking to Ron Wilkerson, the writer of uh, for, for both Star Trek Next Generation and Star Trek Voyager. We're going to be talking about uh, his career in Star Trek and his uh, new book, The Ghost Writer. That's coming up next. So lots of stuff to look forward to. As always, uh, you can find us at our other show at CommentaryTrackStars.com. You can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars. You can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. And I know I say that at the end of everything, but you know what? Write to us or tell us or something. Go to the Trek FM forums and, and, and tell us you know what you think of the show. If you have listened to this show and have never once t- tweeted us or anything just to say like, hey, I listened to your show. It's crap. Do that. We'll take negative criticism. It's fine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we do want to hear and from And besides you. that, we take all silence as positive criticism. If you <laughs> listen to it and don't say anything, I assume that means that you loved it. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, de- definitely, you know, get in touch with us. We will definitely respond to you. And uh, if anyone out there is a fan of Harve Bennett, in particular The Invisible Man from the 70s starring David McCallum, or Time Tracks from the 90s starring I don't even know who. Um, oh, boy. Let us know. If you want to talk to us, if you want to come on the show, you know. Didn't, didn't you love the hologram on that show? Get, get in touch with us. and uh, With that guy from the future? And and we'll we'll try to work something out. With sci-fi Nazis? Yeah. So that's that's about it. Thanks for listening to us and our and our Nicholas Meyer thing, and we will be back next week with Ron Wilkerson talking about his work on Star Trek. 